for an alliance system that was built for the Cold War, there's quite a bit of renovation to be undertaken to bring it up to speed for the 21st century. It's actually the case that these so-called middle powers, although they're not as militarily capable as you know, great powers or larger powers, can actually bring quite a bit to the table. It seemed to us that we were looking at a picture where Washington's ability to sort of get its arms around Silicon Valley and the degree to which Silicon Valley was or was not aligned with the national interest was really slipping. Well, this means recognizing that there's a battle underway between forces of openness and forces of closure. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, editorial director at MWI. And on this episode, I'm joined by Rebecca Listener and Mira Rapp Hooper. Rebecca is an assistant professor at the Naval War College and Mira is Stephen A. Schwartzman's senior fellow for Asia Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and a senior fellow at Yale Law School's China Center. Together, they are the authors of a brand new book called An Open World, How America Can Win the Contest for 21st Century Order. The book is really, as the authors describe it, a call to action for policymakers, and it weaves together questions of strategy and world order and shifting power dynamics, but it also adds important layers like issues of domestic policy, technology, and more. The book comes out very soon and you can pre-order it now. I've had the chance to read it and I'm excited to get to dive in and ask them some questions about it. One quick thing before we get to the discussion, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government, or those of the Naval War College, Council on Foreign Relations, Yale Law School, or any organization my guests are affiliated with. All right, here's my conversation with Mira Rapp-Hooper and Rebecca Listener. Mira and Rebecca, thank you so much for joining the Modern War Institute podcast. It's great to be here, John. Delighted to be here. So I, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm super excited to have you both on. Uh, I'm an admirer of both of your work, uh, including and, and maybe even especially uh, one of the newest pieces of that work, which is a, a brand new book called An Open World, uh, How America Can Win the Contest for 21st Century Order. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to have you both on and kind of dive into uh, some of the subject matter on it. I, you know, one of the perks of my job is that I get a lot of uh, book copies from publishers, advanced reader copies, and I've got my dog-eared and heavily underlined copy of the book next to me right now to guide what I, what I hope will be a really interesting conversation for listeners. We're delighted to have the chance to dive in with you, John. This will be great fun. And thanks so much for taking the time to read the book so closely. So I want to ask, I want to start with a question that I recognize it might sound a little bit silly, but I don't mean for it to be. Uh, the book is really, much of it is about international order, which is something that I'm sure all of our listeners will have a pretty intuitive sense of. Um, and it is one of those things that you kind of you, you understand pretty easily. I've also noted, I think, that the more you dive into it, like a lot of subjects, the more complicated it comes to kind of define what it is. So I wonder if, if one of you might give kind of a quick, concise definition of what you mean when you talk about world order in the context of this book. Specifically, you know, is it something that, should we understand it more as a descriptive thing that sort of describes the world as it is, or prescriptive that kind of governs the actions and decision-making of states within that order? John, that's a great question. And certainly there's so much talk about international order and liberal international order, but too rarely do people actually define what they mean by it. 
So international order in a broad sense refers to norms, rules, and institutions that govern international politics. But it's important to realize that international order is really closely tied with international power. And when power shifts, international order tends to shift as well. So you often hear people refer to the liberal international order, which was an international order that was born in many ways after the end of World War II, although it had important antecedents in Wilsonian internationalism at the end of World War I. And it emerged with the UN system, but then had many other layers that were embroidered upon it over time. For example, as the US and the Soviet Union entered into a Cold War, each created their own bloc that existed on top of the UN system. Over time, decolonization resulted in new states and new forms of order. And of course, with the uh, collapse of the Bretton Woods economic system in the 1970s, that original order uh, listed in a quite important way. But it was really only after the Soviet Union collapsed in the end of the Cold War that what we now refer to as the liberal international order came to seem like it could actually achieve universal reach, that this core idea of liberalism could be one that didn't just apply to a subset of countries, but might actually apply to all countries. And in the years since, the liberal international order had a mixed but pretty good record. It resulted in a lot of spread of democracy, in growing prosperity in many parts of the world, and generally in security, at least among great powers, although there were also some notable security failures like American military interventions in Iraq, which led to considerable violence and destruction. Um, but Looking forward, we have to recognize that as global power has shifted, so too does international order have to shift going forward. And so when we talk about an open world, which is the central idea of this book, we mean it both descriptively in terms of the type of international interactions that we think the U.S. should seek to realize around the world, but also prescriptively in terms of a specific strategy of openness that the United States ought to pursue in order to realize that vision of an international national order characterized by global openness. So the the book kind of traces two parallel sets of trends, one kind of internal to the U.S., domestic uh, issues, domestic policies, and one external to the U.S. in terms of some of the, the, the changes in the international order and, and the world uh, that, you, that you've just described. Um, to what extent is it important to understand the interplay between those two, like I said, parallel sets of trends? So we certainly think it's quite important to understand the interplay between them. Um, and indeed, that's sort of a, a central thesis of our book. Um, that is to say that we can't simply sort of uh, analyze the domestic level trends independently of the international trends if we are to understand the enormity of the consequences of both for the future of America's role in the world um, and on international order. Um, indeed, I would argue uh, that implicitly all of these trends are interrelated. When it comes to the domestic trends that we think are most consequential to the future of the US role in the world, Rebecca and I um, were really pulled towards the central role that domestic political dysfunction um, is playing in holding hostage US foreign policy choices. Um, and we were also uh, really pulled towards the idea 
that technology and the way that the United States exploits its own technological base is going to be totally deterministic in uh, the future of Washington's role in the world, um, namely because the United States has underinvested in research and development and basic research, um, has led to a division of the sort of fates uh, of Silicon Valley in Washington, leaving the U.S. government lacking the technological knowledge and expertise it should want. Um, but there's a natural interplay between these and the global trends that we see afoot. Um, we look closely at changing global power, namely the waning of American primacy, power shifts from West to East, um, and international technological change. And of course, all of these are determined in part by uh, the domestic trends taking place in the United States. When it comes to the technological gaps emerging within the U.S., that will help to determine whether an open technical technological model like the one the United States wants to pursue uh, is ultimately achievable or whether China will get its way uh, when it comes to the types of technological preferences it holds, a preference for more closed technological systems and norms of cyber sovereignty to govern the internet. Um, so too will American political dysfunction ultimately help to determine the perceived global balance of power as power continues to shift. Um, so while we thought it was very important to analyze each of these sets of trends discreetly to ultimately understand the role that they were playing and the degree to which they were likely to continue to be determinative, the interplay between the two of them will help to determine the future of American strategy and its role in the world. Uh, it's really interesting. And I'm glad that you touched on technology. Um, you know, I kind of debated, do I, do I want to try to have a conversation that, that covers everything that you cover um, in the book and and it just isn't possible. Um, but I picked you know kind of three or four big things that I'm gonna I'm gonna get to. And technology is one of those. And I have a couple of specific questions about it. Um, but first, I want to kind of ask um, a couple of kind of big picture questions. In the book, you mentioned that the the post war order, the the liberal international order, as you called it, um, was it didn't just happen. It was in many ways a function of decisions that the United States government made to help build, shape, and support it uh, over the course of you know more than half a century. Um, as U.S. power vis-a-vis -vis other states is diminished um, by almost any measure, but by certainly by some measures more than others, it it would be easy to assume that the U.S no longer has the degree of influence to be able to shape that order. But that's not really the tone uh, of your book. There's a degree of optimism about the degree or about the extent of U.S. influence in shaping, you know, if we accept that we're at kind of an inflection point, shaping the order that will kind of define the world over the coming decade, two decades and, and beyond. In fact, I think um, you specifically say that for policymakers, there, there is an opportunity right now, but you also say that it's fleeting, which means, you know, there's sort of a tone of urgency there along with that optimism. Can you kind of talk a little bit about um, the extent of U.S. influence over uh, the, the world order that is, that is beginning to emerge and what some of the decisions policymakers need to be focusing on in order to exert that influence? So it's pretty clear to us that the United States no longer enjoys the military or economic primacy that it had at the end of the Cold War. That is to say, the United States is no longer the world's sole superpower because we have a peer competitor in Asia. 
Now, that being said, the United States still remains tremendously powerful by all, by all kinds of really important measures. It still is the largest economy in the world by many measures, certainly the largest GDP per capita. It remains the only military capable of global power projection. And it has a domestic innovation base that while too much decoupled from the government and the national interest is the envy of many in the world. So even as the United States has declined in relative terms and no longer enjoys primacy, it still has an extraordinarily propitious international position and one that would have been the envy of almost any state, any great power at all time. So our book is a call to action in an effort to make policymakers recognize that they still can capitalize on this extraordinary position to shape the future of international politics and write the rules of the road that will govern the 21st century especially in the sense of global governance. So what does this mean in practice? Well, this means recognizing that there's a battle underway between forces of openness and forces of closure. And up till now, and particularly over the course of the uh, past four years, it's been a little bit unclear where exactly the United States stands in that battle for openness versus closure. And more to the point, COVID, by inflicting tremendous damage on Americans' health and on the American economy, has actually pushed the United States more in the direction of an inward turn, more in the direction of closure, because it has required steps like closed borders, like diminished trade, um, and so on. Uh, in order to address this massive public health crisis. Now, this bit, this move towards closure, this turn inwards, is a big mistake. And if the United States is to win the contest for 21st century order, which is the subtitle of our book, then what it needs to do is actually seize this window of opportunity to take this moment of destruction, especially the one that will follow in the wake of this pandemic, and turn it into a moment of creation. And that means recognizing that the U.S. can and should lead a coalition of like-minded countries countries to pursue a world that is open, even if it's not a world in which the United States achieves any kind of dominance or primacy of the kind it's had in the past. So an open world is one in which states are free to make political and uh, military choices independently without external coercion. It's a world in which the global commons, especially of seas and space, remain open to free access commercially and militarily. It's a world in which international cooperation endures, but through international institutions and regimes that have been modernized. And it's an order in which the United States seeks to cooperate with other great powers as mutual interests dictates, while also building varying coalitions of like-minded states to support openness in an international order that's not just going to exist as a single monolithic structure, but is likely to be highly diverse, where different coalitions of states will coalesce around different elements of openness, for example, in the economic sphere, in the technological sphere, in the security sphere. And the United States, with its still formidable power, needs to be the linchpin of that open international system. So I want to kind of shift gears then. As I mentioned, there were um, there were several kind of major items that stuck out to me as I was reading the book that, you know, I double, triple underlined um, general topics, sort of. The first of those that I want to ask about is, is technology. And I'll ask kind of a two-part question. Maybe the first is when you're reading about strategy, it's increasingly difficult to find anybody writing about strategy, at least in long form, without at least mentioning technology. But at the same time, it's a it's a complicated subject. Um, 
you know, we have br brilliant strategic thinkers that don't necessarily understand the technological landscape. You guys kind of dove in headfirst and, 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 and went into detail about that. So I wonder if the first question is kind of a general one, if you can kind of expound on the interplay between technology and world order in the future of U.S. national security. And then the second is a more specific one. Um, you know, I've it's it's come up on several podcasts in the past talking about um, um, U.S. defense and and if you look at say World War II when you know we mobilized the country for war, not just the military, um, it was pretty easy to go to U.S. companies and say, "Hey, we need you to stop making sewing machines and make some airplanes or make some tanks." Um, that's increasingly difficult now when it's harder kind of to, to define what a U.S. company is. And so if you look at you know, if you look at Silicon Valley and you've got major, you know, multi-billion dollar firms that are partly owned by, say, Chinese venture capital funds that have ties to the Chinese state, um, does that um, does that limit the extent to which the U.S. government can leverage technology because they don't have the same relationships with uh, and command over the economy that, say, the Chinese Communist Party does? It's a great two-part question, John, um, and I'll jump in by by taking the the first part first. Um, first, when it comes to sort of our diagnosis about how technology matters in the twenty first century, um, I think our view was as as we sort of tried to to get our hands around what, what would be most deterministic of the future of America's role in the world. It was very clear that our ability to remain an innovation superpower was going to be completely formative, uh, not only in the United States overall power base, um, in its commercial opportunities uh, and its sort of innovative vibrancy, but in the way that it was able to lead the world. Um, towards a future where open technology might be possible. Um, so this sort of domestic uh, technological configuration that we look at was totally formative um, to both of those things. Now, of course, it's always been uh, in the interest of a, a great power through any great power throughout history to try to best exploit its technological base um, as it can. But as we sort of dug into the major tech trends that seem to matter most in the United States, it seemed to us that we were looking at a picture where Washington's ability to sort of get its arms around Silicon Valley and the degree to which Silicon Valley was or was not aligned with the national interest was really slipping. Um, that, and that had happened for a variety of reasons. Um, one was centrally the fact that the government was way underinvested in research and development, um, particularly as compared to the Cold War period, um, when this was a huge focus, um, as well as basic research, not just research and development. Uh, second, as a consequence, uh, the American private sector um, and certainly major technology companies uh, acted on the global stage, uh, not, not irrationally, uh, with respect to their market incentives, which included, as you mentioned, um, the fact, you know, sometimes having major VC investments from uh, Chinese firms uh, competing for market share in Asia and in China um, and making decisions that sometimes uh, caused them to defer to the preferences of countries that were increasingly American rivals like China. Um, so this struck us as a big problem too. And third, unrelated to the first two, was the fact that this sort of dealignment between the tech sector and the government meant that the U.S. government was really underserved when it came to the degree that uh, there was tech talent uh, staffing it at all ranks, and particularly at the most senior ranks of government. Um, that is to say, 
with underinvestment and uh, with Silicon Valley sort of chasing market incentives, the U.S. government was lacking the tech talent it needed not only to keep the United States safe, but to keep the government workforce literate on technology issues. Um, so what we sort of saw emerging in this picture uh, was an unfortunate possible state of the world in which the United States could still remain this propitiously powerful nation that Rebecca described. That is to say, we could still have a formidable GDP curve per capita, could still enjoy dollar dominance um, and dominance of the global financial system, uh, still have the world's largest military, and yet find ourselves ever less able to harness our own technological base for national ends. Um, and that struck us as a really chilling prospect for the world's leading power. Um, in some ways, we've seen a similar analogy come to pass over the course of the COVID crisis, not just with technology, but more broadly. That is to say that the United States was perceived to be the world's best positioned country to take on a global pandemic before COVID arrived on our shores. And yet over the course of the last several months, we have vastly underperformed our innate government capacity. Um, so to our minds, the technological base and the sort of decoupling between Washington and Silicon Valley um, is both a deep problem in and of itself and emblematic of a broader set of trends uh, that suggest that the United States government may be ever less able to harness its own power base unless it acts soon. And to take the second part of your question, John, about how tech companies and maybe the private sector more broadly can collaborate with the U.S. government, this is actually a central component of the openness strategy that our book advocates. And it calls for a new model of public-private partnerships. Precisely so, as Mira said, the U.S. can actually leverage its full economic and technological capacity for the national interest. And the need for this, as Mira just highlighted and as you highlighted in your comments, is pretty clear because we all know and it's widely understood that geopolitical competition is taking on an increasingly economic and increasingly technological character. And so this core relationship between a state and its tech and business community is going to become ever more important. And of course, the contrast here that everyone draws is the one with China and the way in which the state plays such a large role in its economy. Whereas you have these instances like the notorious Project Maven example in the U.S. where, you know, large tech companies like Google have been resistant to cooperating with the uh, U.S. government. So what our strategy proposes is essentially a mix of carrot and sticks that seek to realign the private sector and particularly the tech sector with the U.S. national interest. And that doesn't mean it has to look exactly as it did in the Cold War. Um, obviously, globalization and the way that technology has evolved makes it substantially more complex. But there are still really important policy levers that the U.S. government can pull but isn't pulling right now. So precisely as Mira had mentioned, the United States federal government can invest in the cornerstones of American innovation by expanding its R&D funding. Um, that in turn, we think, will reset the incentives that Silicon Valley faces as it makes choices about where to dedicate its focus, where to dedicate its research, and even you know when to take um, when to take outside money from foreign investors, for example. Um, if you're working on a federal government-funded national security project, there are going to be more restrictions on your ability to take foreign investment, for example. There also need to be lower barriers to cooperation between tech companies or tech talent and the national security community. So there, 
the Defense Department's procurement process is extremely difficult to navigate if you are a small technological startup. But there are some good ideas that are already uh, being piloted now, like DIU and other types of rapid procurement programs that can make it much easier for these agile and innovative companies to enter into federal government contracts. Um, and also, the federal government and the DOD in particular needs to get better at actually adopting innovative technologies that are coming out of the private sector, innovative technologies that are often commercial in nature. And for that, there needs to be more tech talent, exactly as Mira said, inside the government. So some of that is about breaking down barriers by allowing people who, for example, you know, maybe are reservists who also work at Google to apply their technological talent to national security problems through such ideas like a cyber reserve. Uh, it might mean better technology fellowships that bring in people to the government uh, from jobs in the private sector for a shorter period of time. But whatever it is, there needs to be a more technologically literate workforce within the federal government, and especially at its most senior levels, both so that it can adopt these new technologies and also so it can regulate effectively because technology is changing and evolving at such a rapid clip. It's pretty clear that the United States' ability to keep tabs even on American companies like Facebook uh, has not kept pace. And so bringing more tech talent into the government through a variety of different pipelines is going to be crucial in that regard. And finally, but relatedly, there's the idea of regulation because as companies and especially tech companies do chase market incentives and they chase their own profit incentives, those are not always going to lead to alignment with a broader national interest. And that is where smart regulation comes in to make sure that these companies are making choices that are consistent with their status as American companies. And that doesn't mean that their entire workforce is American. It might not even mean that their most senior leadership is American. But at the end of the day, if you are doing business and benefiting from the environment of being a company based in the United States, we argue that you have a fundamental obligation to help out the federal government to work in alignment with the national interest, and also that you have an interest in doing so. Because to the extent that the U.S. loses out in this battle to define an open technological order for the future, that actually is going to be prejudicial to the interests of American tech companies. And the fact that Zoom has been subject to these odious national Chinese regulations uh, is a pretty clear instance of an example when an American company can't actually adhere to American norms and values because of of the pursuit of market incentives that are actually at odds with American interests. I kind of I want to shift gears then to the second um, kind of big thing that that keeps recurring uh, in the book that keeps getting mentioned, and that's the importance of allies. You know, we uh, in the U.S. military we often say we don't go to war alone. Um, we always work alongside allies, and and it's easy for us to think about alliances strictly within kind of the military instrument of of national power. Um, but your treatment of the of the topic of allies is much more expansive than that. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about why you see allies as as such a critical component um, of helping to shape a you know a, a, a more advantageous world order in the future, and then also how the advantages that are accorded to the United States by maintaining those alliances might differ than the than they were in, say, the, the Cold War. 
Absolutely, John. I'm I'm happy to hop in on that one. Um, I just put out another book that's on the sort of past and future of America's alliance system. Um, but my argument in that book and the argument that Rebecca and I are putting forth here really are, um, they, they dovetail with one another um, and they're deeply informed by similar streams of thinking. Um, I think the sort of bottom line up front is that America's alliance system bestows advantages uh, in terms of power and capability of all kinds uh, that is really quite unprecedented for pretty much any country on earth. And while this alliance system was formed in the early days of the Cold War to defend and deter against a very specific threat that was military and nuclear conflict with the Soviet Union, it remains possible and indeed uh, quite desirable today to remake it to increasingly tackle the types of threats that we face in the 21st century and indeed to use this system and work with allies to keep the world open, as we argue. Um, now, that will take some doing, um, but it's certainly within uh, the U.S. government's potential. And indeed, if we are to succeed in pursuing uh, a grand strategy of openness, as we argue, allies are going to be completely essential in that quest. Um, so first things first is, is just the basic fact that when we talk about allies, we're generally talking about American treaties allies. Uh, that is, uh, it's set of uh, mutual defense treaty commitments in Europe and Asia. So that means NATO and four treaty holding countries uh, in East Asia. Um, and that's just uh, simply sort of a, a categorical distinction uh, that bears noting as we dig into allies further. Uh, but the reason that allies matter so much in our estimation is precisely because of the power shifts that we're seeing take place across the global landscape. Of course, that includes the relative decline of American power with respect to China but it also includes broader power shifts from west to east um, that certainly um, advantage China, but also make much of the economic future, um, economic engine of the future uh, seem likely to be Asia. Um, and it includes the fact that allies themselves, while often relatively stagnant um, in demographic and economic terms, are technologically sophisticated, uh, tend to have very high GDPs per capita, um, and as the COVID crisis is showing us, are scientifically quite capable um, and indeed have good governance by and large. Um, so when it comes to the types of qualities that the United States should be seeking in an alliance system, if it were to build it from scratch today, particularly to enlist allies in this battle for openness, the United States is in many ways already allied with exactly the countries it should want to have by its side. Um, now, the reason that the United States, of course, needs allies is because without them, geopolitical math does not favor Washington. China will continue to rise. The reverberations of the crisis we're living through today will be with us for years to come. But if U.S. capabilities are combined with those of allies in Western Europe and in Asia, the United States and its allies remain mighty for years, if not decades to come. Um, but a key uh, set of policy prescriptions that we lay out, both with respect to allies and more broadly, is that we must stop thinking of our national security objectives as defined primarily by military missions. That is, for an alliance system that was built for the Cold War, there's quite a bit of renovation to be undertaken 
to bring it up to speed for the 21st century. We expect that much of geopolitical competition in the coming years, of course, will not be primarily military, although military conflict is possible. Um, we expect to see a persistence of subconventional so-called gray zone conflict taking place everywhere from in the maritime domain to in cyberspace. Um, so we would like to see alliances increasingly upgraded and broadened to tackle those sets of challenges. And we believe much of the future of 21st century geopolitics will be determined in technological and economic domains. Um, but for all of those reasons, allies bring to bear extraordinary capabilities and know-how, as well as an alignment with the United States in favor of a global order that is open. Um, so to my mind there, to our mind rather, there is a great deal of work to be done to fit this system to the openness task, but there is little question that the United States with allies on its side is about as well positioned as it could be to bring that strategy to reality. And then moving on to, I guess, uh, that's a, it's a very good segue into the next um, kind of uh, item that I, that I wanted to mention that I took note of because you mentioned it several times throughout the book, and that's um, the role and influence of what you call middle powers uh, in the sort of emerging world order today and, and, and going forward into the future. Can you talk a little bit about that? Middle powers are really important in furthering an open world because in many cases, they are going to determine whether the global correlation of forces broadly defines favors openness or favors closure. So precisely as Mira said, because the future of geopolitics is not only going to be determined in the military domain, but also has so much to do with commercial and economic factors and also technology. It's actually the case that these so-called middle powers, although they're not as militarily capable as you know, great powers or larger powers, can actually bring quite a bit to the table. So in many important cases, you think about a Japan or a Germany, these are extremely economically advanced and very technologically capable countries with which the United States already has these treaty alliance relationships. These countries should absolutely be on the side of the United States in the global battle for openness. In other cases, there are sort of rising middle powers, and India here is a really good example that is going to be increasingly powerful and, in fact, you know, has a very sharply upward GDP expectation curve over the next 30 or so years, putting it in the top three with the U.S. and China if it stays on track with its current projections. And as a result, India is going to have a really important say over what the future of the international order looks like. And it's very much in the interest of the United States that India be aligned with the United States on as many elements of an open international order as possible. And the recent Sino-Indian border conflict should make this a lot more likely. And so you've already seen pretty significant cooperation between the U.S., uh, Japan, Australia, and India through the so-called Quad to preserve a free and open Indo-Pacific. Uh, but going forward, India is going to be a really important player in determining what is the future of the international economic order look like and is it open? What does the future of the international technological order look like and is it open? So in all of these cases, the United States needs to, I think, keep two really important factors in mind. 
One is that when you look at the world, not purely in military terms, you can see that there are power centers that exist beyond the so-called great powers and beyond the sort of bipolar framework of the US and China. This is not going to be a new Cold War where there are two really clearly defined blocks. In fact, these middle powers are going to have you know, considerable influence and also considerable autonomy in deciding how they want to align on various issues, which leads to the second and related point, which is that the US is going to have to lead a concerted coalition building effort behind openness. And what that means is that, as I mentioned earlier, there's not just going to be a single international order. There's not going to be a single institution that includes all the key countries that all agree on the same set of rules to maintain an open world. In fact, the U.S. is going to have to fight really hard using its diplomacy in order to keep the world open by figuring out where states have convergent interests with ours and building like-minded coalitions of states that can at minimum define a new set of rules that keep the international order order open, whether that's on areas of new technology like data governance, norms for cyberspace, norms around the use of AI, norms around areas of digital trade that are not governed by the WTO, all of those things. We're going to have to build those coalitions in order to make sure that American interests and the interests of openness remain um, secure, that they are advanced, but also to prevent adverse preferences from coalescing in the form of Chinese or Russian authoritarian preferences for closed systems. And you can make no mistake that China also fully recognizes that there's a battle for the future of international order underway. And it has a very different set of closed preferences that contrast sharply with the ones that the U.S. should be advancing. And they are also going to be trying to build coalitions and to court these middle powers. And so in many cases, the United States' ability to really secure key middle powers on our side on as many of the key dimensions of openness as possible is going to be determinative in terms of who wins the battle for 21st century order. So I want to kind of, uh, as we move toward kind of closing out the conversation, I've got two final questions. The first of which is, um, is we're going to divert a little bit because it's it's a process question uh, that I'd like to ask just because I'm fascinated by it. Um, why did you write the book? Um, well, it, it probably won't surprise listeners to know that we decided to write this book um, after the 2016 elections um, that sort of struck by everything that, that seemed to be taking place in the United States abroad. Um, Rebecca and I, who were already friends um, and colleagues, uh, decided that we had to undertake a joint project together. Um, but the immediate catalyst for us realizing that there was a project here was the fact that it seemed that in the wake of the 2016 elections, analysts on both sides of the political aisle seemed to ascribe to the newly elected U.S. president, of course, Donald Trump, uh, the power to level the entire liberal international order about which we have been talking. That is, um, folks on both sides of the political divide seem certain that at the hands of this one singular figure, the system that the United States had helped to build and lead since 1945 was in absolute peril and indeed would not survive. Um, and as we sort of absorbed that commentary and tried to process it amongst ourselves, it 
it seemed ever more clear like there was something more afoot, that Trump was not, in fact, a force so strong that he was able to level the entire organizing principle of the international system, but rather he was an avatar for a set of domestic and international changes that were reshaping U.S. foreign policy and the American role in the world and had been unleashed some time ago. So the book was really a response that set to push back against two pieces of conventional wisdom. First, the idea that Trump alone was solely responsible for this so-called liberal international order collapse. And second, the idea that the United States would ever have the option of returning to foreign policy business as usual after he left office. By investigating these long-term domestic and international shifts that we believe well predated the current president and will outlast him whenever he leaves office, our research tried to ultimately anticipate the emergency in which we find ourselves today. That is the tragic um, illustration by COVID that the international order built for the world of the mid-20th century is utterly ill-equipped to meet the challenges and opportunities we will face in the next several decades. We knew that the United States would need a new strategic approach when this period ended, so we set out to find it. So last question then, and um, I'm, I'm impressed that we're, you know, listeners, I, I'm, I'm sure we'll We'll gather and assume that we're recording this remotely. We can't see each other. You guys are doing an excellent job of kind of trading off and, and answering individually. But this one I'm going to specifically ask, I think, both of you to answer. Um, given that you, I think, describe the book as sort of a call to action, um, are you hopeful that that it will be heated? This book is indeed a call to action, and it really lays out the necessity for the United States to pursue this openness strategy so that it can win this battle over the rules, the norms, the institutions that will govern the 21st century and the future of geopolitics. My hope, frankly, hinges very much on the outcome of the next, the upcoming presidential election. But it's important to recognize that regardless of who wins in November, there's a risk of our advice not being sufficiently heated. And what I mean by that is that the, the openness strategy is a response to two instincts, I think both of which are misguided and in many ways impractical. The first instinct is the instinct towards closure and nationalism, the idea that the United States needs to wall itself off from the world, that it needs to pursue greater closure, that it needs to retreat from its position of global leadership on the assumption that that position has been too costly and not beneficial to the United States. In contrast, the openness strategy argues that beneficial economic interdependence, that international alliances, that American leadership in renovated and modern international institutions are actually the only way for the United States to keep itself safe and secure. But we also argue against this idea of restoration or this idea of nostalgia, any sort of sense that we can return to the world of 2016, the world of 2009, the world of 2000, the world of 1990, let alone the world of 1945, when many of the core institutions of the liberal international order were actually founded. We find ourselves today in a 
dramatically changed world, one that is changed by the phenomenon that we highlight in the book, like global power shifts, like technological change, like the domestic political dysfunction facing the United States, but also, frankly, changed by the COVID pandemic that we're all living through right now. And so it would be equally a mistake to retreat behind nationalism and to resort to sort of nostalgic bids for restoration in defining the future of international order. So I'm hopeful because the United States absolutely has an opportunity to lead towards an open world. And, you know, if, if all goes well, perhaps uh, our book will find itself in the hands of the right people uh, who can make some of our ideas a reality. I'll just um, embroider on Rebecca's terrific answer um, and say that in in many ways, the uh, multifaceted crisis that we're living through right now has accelerated and accentuated the set of trends that we already saw afoot. That is to say that COVID has sped up a set of processes and interactions that we expected to play out over the course of 10 or 15 years. Um, And the tragedy is undeniable. And in its unleashing, um, not only have we seen a catastrophic global health crisis, but a leveling of the global economy. um, And of of course, much needed demands for racial justice and equality here in the United States. Um, And while in the past, in an international relations literature, we often think of ordering moments as coming after major conflicts, that is after a war sort of resets the terms of the global balance of power, creating a new need for order. Um, And we would not in any way sort of create an analogy between COVID and war. Um, We do think there is a absolute clear need here for a new approach to international cooperation and international order that is so grievously lacking in this crisis, whether it's the relative abdication of the United States or the clear sclerosis of institutions like the United Nations, as we all struggle to respond, the system that we thought was still standing under us had very clearly buckled before this crisis ever broke out. So I am hopeful uh, that there will be this opportunity to build something new um, and perhaps even better going forward. Uh, But I would just end on the note that you noted, John, which is that this is urgent. If this opportunity is indeed here as we see it, it's a short one, it's fleeting, and it will not come again. Um, This is certainly one of the many stakes uh, that will loom over us in the months ahead. And obviously, we hope that this moment will be seized. Well, I think that's a perfect place to end on then. Uh, Rebecca and Mira, thank you so much for for joining the podcast. It was a fascinating conversation for listeners. Uh, the book, I can assure you, is, is, is equally fascinating. It'll, it's thought-provoking. So both of you, thank you very much. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing before you go, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. It is a great way for us to stay in contact with the incredible community of listeners and readers who share our interests in topics related to modern war. All right, thanks again.